Welcome to Wellness Rebranded. We know there is so much conflicting health and fitness advice out there. And you're tired of the wellness fads, endless diets, and impossible standards that make you feel like nothing you do is ever enough. You're ready to tune into your mind and body and feel empowered around health. We're the Healing Trio, here to help you redesign your relationships with food, fitness, and yourself. I'm Elizabeth, registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. I'm Maria, licensed mental health therapist. And I'm Tara, personal trainer. Together, we're changing the narrative on health away from diet culture, hustle culture, and toxic positivity and towards healthful self-care. So grab your water bottle, get ready to laugh, learn, and grow. And And let's let's start rebranding your wellness journey. Hey, fellow listeners, it's Melissa, self-titled wellness rebranded groupie. Every Wednesday, I eagerly tune in to hear the down-to-earth conversations from my own non-diet dietitian, Elizabeth Harris, the powerhouse personal trainer, Tara DeLeon, and the inspirational therapist, Maria Winters. Together, they're on a mission to debunk the myths that surround diet culture and wellness culture. Trust me, these episodes have become my weekly sanity check, offering a refreshing perspective on what it truly means to be healthy. So if you're like me and you're tired of the same old wellness cliches, Wellness Rebranded is a journey to a healthier mindset. Tune in every Wednesday to navigate your Wellness Rebranded journey with me. Welcome back to another episode of Wellness Rebranded. I'm here with Elizabeth and Maria as usual today, but we have a super special guest. We have Dr. Hortensia Jimenez here with us. Um, She is a professor of sociology and a health coach. And she is super fascinating to me because she talks a lot about the intersection of cultural foods, racism, oppression, diet culture, and how all of this kind of works together against us rather than what traditional diet culture is doing. So thank you so much, Dr. Hortensia, for coming on the show. Please introduce yourself. Hi, thank you so much for the invitation. I really thought about this question, you know, uh, to introduce myself. And I think it really depends where we're at in our life, right? And our our experiences. So at this very moment, I would like to share that I am a proud queer Latina immigrant of indigenous background living in uh, Salinas, California. I have three beautiful kids, two teenagers and a preteen. I am a full-time sociology professor. I have a passion for education. And I'm really passionate about the work that I do on social media and dismantling diet culture. I love it. Thanks so much for being with us today. So what do you think that the most important thing about systemic racism and food might be for our listeners to know? Because honestly, before I started following your page, I didn't even think of food and racism in the same thought. But obviously, that's not the case. Yes, absolutely. There's a common saying, right, that food is political. And until we understand why food is political, it's really understanding the systems of oppression in our society. And although you said, you know, what's the connection between race and food, uh, I really want to expand the conversation to add the different systems of oppression. And what I mean by that is all the isms uh, that have been created by society to enforce social hierarchies, right? And examples of this, of course, is racism, classism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, heterosexism, ageism, (laughs) and etc. Right. And so once we begin to examine diet culture from a 
social justice lens rooted in systems of oppression, we realize that diet culture is this, I want to say it's like a monster, this huge industry, right, that impacts our well-being and it goes beyond just impacting our relationship with food, right, but it's everything that makes us who we are with our multiple identities. That is so interesting that, you know, like I've never really given that much thought, but, you know, I was a high school student in Costa Rica. And every time, of course, when I was in high school, you know, I was much thinner than I am now. Not probably not as much body confidence as I have now, ironically, but I go back now. And the first thing everybody says to me is like, oh, I mean, how fat you are. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, true. Mm-hmm. I have gained a lot of weight since high school, as I probably should have since I've, um, you know, gotten 20 years older and had children and lived life. Right. Um, but they seem almost like not to mean it as like an insult. It's more of like an observation, but it still kind of makes you feel terrible when people it does. notice that. And, you know, you brought up such an important point that you said, you know, people associate and that's part of diet culture right that doing all these diets fat diets and food restrictions somehow is going to give you that thinner body and being thin does not equal confidence right but that's the gaslighting of diet culture and so i really appreciate what you just shared of like even being a little heavier being in a bigger body or whatever it is that we're in our life like confidence is not measured by the number on the scale but diet culture says that it is yeah I love that because I feel like here at the gym, I work with people all the time that come to me talking about they want to be thin. Um, And then once we start doing like some heavy weightlifting or getting into other types of exercise, now they're worried about the number of pounds in the bar, not the number Mm -hmm, of pounds mm -hmm. in the scale. Um, Exactly. Or the strength that they can get, right? Yes. Mm -hmm, It gives mm -hmm. them this confidence that it's just, I don't think you can find confidence like that anywhere else. It's just like a beautiful mm. transition. Yeah, it- and that's what diet culture does, right? It, it it asks you to look for the confidence in external, really shallow things of just your your phen- your body image and your physical features as the confidence, and that's just BS, and it's really oppressive. One of the things that I thought was really interesting when I was reading through, I, I'm not sure if it was something on your website or your bio, but I, I saw something that you. Um, had put out there where you were talking about just kind of the mixed messaging that you got in childhood, particularly as it relates to kind of some specific cultural messaging around kind Mm -hmm. of food and your body. And I was wondering if you could talk more about that. Sure. And again, you know, as as a woman of color, as a Latina immigrant, uh, just to, coming from that lens, um, but I think just in general, too, for different Latinx communities is it, it ties down to the root of binaries, right? So on the one hand, we can embrace our cultural foods, enjoy the eating, but wait, you know, then the shaming of don't eat too much or finish your food or you're going to gain weight. So that's the other extreme. So there's, it's always this tug of war and it is a lot of unlearning throughout your life, right? Because if I grew up for you know, 17 years <laughs> until I left the, to the university, I was already a good, I was already damaged. And what I mean by damage is these internalized ideas about what it means to be a Mexican immigrant in terms of like the gender roles that were enforced in the kitchen. Like I need to learn how to cook and clean to serve men, but at the same time, enjoy your culture food. So like I'm getting this, like celebrate your culture foods 
But at the same time, it's like you also need to learn traditional gender roles. And all that is quite oppressive, right? So it's these oppressive binaries that really, I would say, really had such a big impact in my life and that I'm still healing and I'm, I'm still unlearning. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, um, it does. Yeah, I just, I know it's a conversation also just when we talk about uh, even kind of nutrition and sort of dietary patterns that get presented as sort of the healthful ones. And like a lot of times they are not that culturally sensitive in, in the way that Absolutely. we talk about it through diet culture. Yes. Yes. So, yes. So if we were to being a sociologist, I actually have a plug here, uh, um, an undergraduate textbook titled Latinas, Latinx at the Intersection will be released in September, and it's an undergraduate textbook on Latino studies. And I wrote a chapter on how food has been racialized from a sociological lens. And so to answer that question is to understand how diet culture in the wellness industry and these influencers demonize culture foods in general, but specifically Mexican foods, we have to go back to 1848. We have to go back to the US-Mexico War and the displacement, the violent displacement of indigenous and Mexicans in the Southwest. That are Those are the earliest uh, recollect recollections of uh, nutritionists and dietitians demonizing our culture of food, saying that, I mean, even, and I wanna cry, even anti-immigrant legislation as the Greaser Act. The Greaser Act referred to Mexicans as, it's such a racialized language, right? As, as greasers, dirty and clean because of our culture foods. And I get emotional because this is how, how embedded and powerful it is and how it really impacts a lot of us to be ashamed of our culture foods, lard. I grew up in, in the Sierra, in, in Nayarit, Mexico. And my father, when I would go to Mexico as a way to celebrate that I was there, he would he would kill a pig and, and our pigs were like, cause we lived off our land, right? So they would kill a pig, they would do a whole celebration and they would use the lard. They would save the lard to later cook, right? And so if we understand that from like now in the wellness and diet cultures, like that's like the worst, it's unhealthy. But if we're looking at the connection to the land, the connection to the animals and what that means when you when you know you're you're celebrating in community and then you're preserving all that. So that kind of ties into like even lard Mexicans use could even today use lard in their cooking uh, in their um, fried beans. Like, honestly, it tastes so good. Refried <laughs> beans with lard versus with oil is a whole different like dimension. Right. So part of understanding that that's like, that has a lot of Mexicans may may use lard for specific culture foods. Um, even like on the holidays for tamales, people use lard to for their their dough, their their masa. Um, and I think here the key is understanding that we can embrace our culture foods and understand that there are certain foods that may cause, you know, they have different nutritional value and, and the balancing, right? It doesn't mean like completely restrict or, or get rid of these culture foods. It's like, how can we add them to our diet while balancing it out and then using them during these celebrations that are really meaningful and that are part of our identity? I know, kind of went off the subject a little. I don't know. I'm no, so I'm intrigued by this because, like, 
what could be healthier, honestly, than like raising your own food and knowing exactly where that food came from and how it was raised, you know, and like, mm-hmm. and we're going to act like the rest of us don't eat pork or lard mm-hmm. or and like, come on, like, mm-hmm. yes, we do, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. to feel like mm-hmm. we're um, making a, you know, being ridiculous with going like, oh, well, they eat lard, like, well, so does everyone, you know, mm-hmm. like, that's crazy. Yeah. That's yeah. terrible. And yeah. What? I did um I did mention it on my uh Instagram like I want to continue to create content around the intersections of immigration racism and nativism but it's very hard for me because it's not only like understanding intellectually as a professor yes I can talk about this but like these are my ancestors this is my this is part of the ethnic group that I'm part of and it hurts there's that intergenerational trauma and violence right so I, I want to make it clear for a community who's listening that um, culture foods have historically ha, have historically been racialized and it impacts our sense of belonging in the nation state and it affects how we are perceived, how we're treated and how we show up in the world and ultimately how we treat our body, right? Yes. And that's why I truly believe that the work that you're doing has so much value. Because and the courage that you have to have to go out there and talk about something that not only you believe in, but that you feel and it hurts. And I want to thank you for that, because it's going to open the eyes to so many people, including the three of us, even as a Latina. There's so many things that I don't know. And that even listening to you makes me think of the way I grew up, that I'm you know, and, and that was my next question. When did you know, what made you realize that you grew up with all these messages? Like what made you, you know, come to, to opening your, your eyes to what you were um, being exposed to? I think if we look in terms of systems of oppression and looking at like sexism and heteronormativity, um, I think I I always knew, I think I always been a sociologist, I always been kin to my knowing, to my intuition. And I want to thank my ancestors and my my indigenous ancestors for giving me that gift, for understanding that something was wrong. I always, in my own way, I want to say that I challenged um, patriarchy and the sexist comments at home of what what, that I had to be compartmentalized in the box. And this is what you're supposed to be like, well, well, support your education, but at the same time, follow these traditional gender roles, values, ideologies that are so oppressive, that are silencing you. And I, I challenged that, right? So I can tell you that from the moment that I have recollection up until today, I've been challenging that. But really, um, I think a catalyst, I don't, I don't think there was a catalyst or a moment where I'm like, this is it. It was a slow process. I think when I had my children, I had my three children while I was pursuing my PhD. I had them at different stages of my PhD journey. And I was part of the um, toxic wellness industry of a health food. You know, that's why I'm so passionate in, in doing the work that I do, because I am an example. Like I would not be here if it wasn't for those experiences that I bought into the food hierarchy and placing a more value on food. How did that happen? It, 
it happened. <laughs> I ended up there and then I slowly began to unlearn and did my health coaching. So there wasn't like a moment. I think it was more like it was just this journey. And this journey took me into not only unlearning the food, the food rules, um, but then bringing in my sociological background and looking at the anti-diet space as a space that was not representative of, of my identities. Yeah. And it's still not, right? We have fought and to forge our place. And what I mean by fighting is by vocalizing our perspectives as, you know, as women of color, as Latina, as a, Latin, a queer Latina immigrant in the anti-diet space. So now I would say that the catalyst is lack of representation where I feel like people are talking about all this stuff and like, you're not looking at these structural factors. Uh, you're not looking at inequality. You're not looking at racism. I'm like, and I'm like, don't you see it? And that's when I'm like, okay, I need to write up about this and because a lot of people are not doing it it is black women it has always been black women who have led the way right and talking about the connection of race and food and then um other latinas are starting to to talk about that and i'm included in in those conversations because representation matters right or voices matter and ultimately it's part of my own healing to let that out from my body right that's part of my own liberation is sharing that so that other women who may see themselves in me and other folks can see that they're not alone in this journey and to validate their experiences. Hey there, it's Elizabeth. I'm going through my clients' weekly check-in forms and I literally cannot stop smiling to myself. I love seeing when they say that they are eating foods they haven't allowed themselves to eat in years, that they're enjoying it guilt-free, when they tell me how much more in control they feel of their eating, of their food choices, that they're connecting and respecting their hunger and fullness cues, or in the words of one of them, that they're just having so much more fun feeling normal around food, especially knowing that they have these tools as we head into the holiday season. If you would also like to channel that feel good eating energy, avoid a regret fueled January food hangover that sends you rushing for the nearest diet and rack up easy and simple self-care wins between now and New Year's, I invite you to check out my new email program. It's called Intuitive Eating Through the Holidays, and I will send you a very simple, very fast daily tip via email from Thanksgiving straight through to Christmas to help you eat intuitively, sidestep toxic diet culture, and feel connected to your body, along with some other really cool bonuses and goodies in this program. It's just $67. You can sign up now at the link in the show notes or visit elizabethharrisnutrition.com forward slash feel good holiday eating. And there's a dash in between each of those last words. So elizabethharrisnutrition.com slash feel dash good dash holiday dash eating. I really hope to see you there and cannot wait to help you feel fab about food and yourself this holiday season. You know, when I was an exchange student in Costa Rica, I stayed with a family that was amazing. I absolutely love them and keep in touch with them to this day. Um, and there was a husband and wife and two girls that were about my age. Um, I was 17 at the time. And then my little brother was nine. Um, and it was fascinating and appalling for me to see the difference in how the kids were treated. Um, and I was treated more like 
like family, but kind of like the pet that doesn't know what they're doing yet. <laughs> you know, like I didn't have a lot of responsibilities in the home or anything. Um, but one time we were, we sat down for dinner and my mother, Costa Rican mother had set the table um, and given everybody forks. And the nine-year-old said, how many times have I told you, I don't eat with a fork, I eat with a spoon and like yelled in front of the whole table sitting there. And I was like appalled and was like, oh my gosh, that is your mother. We do not talk to her like that. That is completely disrespectful. And then I got, you know, told to sit down and be callita and just shut up and listen, you know, mm-hmm. let them deal with it. And the only thing that came from that conversation was my Costa Rican mother went to the kitchen and got him a spoon. And then we all continued eating like nobody else said anything. And I was absolutely appalled by this. And it's just like a simple example of the mm-hmm. patriarchy and how that's so set in our culture um, mm-hmm. or more so in your culture than, I mean, mine too, but more so in yours, I would imagine. Right. Um, well, you know, patriarchy does not uh, discriminate uh, racial right. groups or ethnic groups is right across the board. Right. But how we experience the patriarchy, of course, is, is unique to our own experiences. Absolutely. And it's interesting to me because when, when I lived there back in the early 2000s, every meal was a heaping portion of white rice, which of course I loved. Um, and usually some like black beans, which are also delicious. Um, and maybe like a tiny, tiny bit of protein, you know, chicken, whatever, egg. Um, but now that country has gone under this like wellness revolution. Um, and my family was just up here visiting me a few months ago and they were like, oh, we don't eat rice. And I'm like, what? What? (laughs) I was like, I didn't know what to make of that. Um, So now it's all like smoothies and veggies. And they've pretty much like foregone their typical diet in Mm -hmm. favor of trying to eat, quote unquote, healthy. Right. Um, And 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 it was interesting and sad for me to see that actually yeah yeah and that's part of what the wellness and even diet culture does right is that when you healthify our culture of foods you're stripping away your connection to those foods you're taking away the memory of the foods that we have from an indigenous lens it's like food transmits knowledge food transmits uh wisdom and connection to our ancestors like that is deep and for diet culture to healthify the foods is like offensive. It's that is the best way that you lose yourself, that you lose your essence, your who you are as an individual. And that's what capitalism and white supremacy want in our society so that we lose ourselves. So we lose our sense of identity and who we are, because when we know who we are, we are so powerful. And that because we're powerful, we create change. It seems a lot like um, people are spending money on diets and diet books and all the things that diet culture tells us we have to have. And then when they realize they can't eat any of the foods they love, it's like, Oh, well now what? Right. Yeah, You're miserable. You're, you're miserable. miserable. You may lose the way you may lose the way you may externally look good based on those standards, but you may feel empty inside because you are restricting your culture foods and those family gatherings, you're able to be in community, you're able to share the meal with others and talk, you know, so restriction uh, and healthifying foods creates an erasure of communities and relationships. It's, it's very deep. If we, if we were to, for those who want to <laughs> understand that from a cultural lens, it's very deep and it, it's, 
it's violent and it's hurtful and it, and it affects your your well-being. Well, we, we do know you as a sociologist and in my case as a therapist that belonging to a community and that sense of community gives you power. But the less power you have, the more controllable you are, right? So it, Absolutely. it makes sense what you were saying that there might be a purpose behind all this because then the less that sense of belonging, the more you are you know, looking for other yes. things following whatever it is that they want us to follow without question. Mm -hmm. So it's stripping away that power that comes mm -hmm. with the sense of belonging to your culture, to your people, to your food. It makes perfect sense. Yes. Yes. And it, because diet culture is rooted in, in homogeneous, right, to have this standard body that does not exist, this unrealistic body is, when are we going to understand that we are not supposed to fit in, right? That we're supposed to be unique. Everything, everything from our, everything is what makes us unique and beautiful. Yet diet culture has gaslighted us to believe that your, our uniqueness is the problem. And I believed it <laughs> and I'm unlearning this and it's hard mm -hmm. work because it's very damaging. And Dr. Jimenez, it's like what Brene Brown says. She says, fitting in is exactly the opposite of belonging. It ha it's, you know, the opposite spectrums of it. So yes. it makes Absolutely. sense. We need to belong, not fit in. Two different things. Elizabeth, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was just going to say that it, it's just in many ways, diet culture is so reductionist, right? In, in all fronts, just reducing down health to this like very narrow definition, reducing down how we think about food to just calories and reducing down how we think about bodies to this one kind of toxic ideal. And I love the perspective that you bring in talking about the cultural aspects, because really from my perspective, intuitive eating and anti-diet work is really about like, uh, obviously expanding that so much better. And food mm -hmm. is so much more than just nutrients or calories. It's culture and tradition and love and fun and connection and, um, and delicious. <laughs> and delicious. <laughs> yes. And, you know, and I think I, I, I see a shift in the anti-diet space and in intuitive eating. I do want to credit women of color for leading these conversations, right? That food is more than just like, you know, um, moving away from like tracking and all this, but like really bringing in the cultural component and the racial component of, of food. Because even in the anti-diet space, uh, those are, I would say, you know, not very dominant conversations. And that's because there lacks that representation. But I'm, I'm happy to see that um, slowly there are more uh, influencers or accounts or health coaches talking about this. I was just going to ask if you could talk about a, a little bit about the social determinants of health from your perspective and how it all fits in. Uh, absolutely. There's many uh, factors, right? There's many social determinants of health. Um, let's say, okay, so your income is one, housing, your environment, and like the neighborhood, um, just to name a few, okay? So if we just focus on uh, economics, your social class, that's one uh, social determinant of health because your social class will impact where you live the quality of life that you're going to have, the community, the neighborhood, 
plays such a huge role, especially for communities of color. If you're a farm worker and you're undocumented and you work in the field, it's going to be very rare that you live in a quiet residential um, neighborhood, right? Because of the income that you make. So then your environment shapes your well being. If there's a high crime, if there's a lot of noise, if there's not, if you're living in the garage or, uh, you know, with multiple people in, in one home, which is very common that is also going to impact your health, right? And then the type of work that you're doing, if you're exposed to pesticides, if you're exposed to sexual harassment, which uh, immigrant farm worker women are exposed to, that is going to impact your, your well-being. And then, which we oftentimes just talk about, because what I just talked about is less discussed in the anti-diet space, but what is discussed more is your social class and food insecurity uh, and food uh, apartheid, right? Not having access. And this really upsets me. How is it that our farm workers are the backbone of our US economy? They're picking our crops, yet they experience food insecurity. There's something wrong there, right? And it's because they don't have access to grocery stores. They don't have transportation, right? So that's how the social determinants of health is impacted by our social class. And I just talked about social class. Imagine the other factors. That's super interesting to me. Um, so let me ask you this. What is something that we can do to kind of help improve the situation? Like what, give me some action points that I can do. Yes, for sure. The work that you're currently doing, um, reaching out to marginalized uh, folks, uh, marginalized identities to share our perspective and our, not only how we see the world, but our own lived experiences to provide your platform that space, right? for sharing this information and this knowledge to amplify the work that we're doing, um, to be allies, to move away from being an ally to a co-conspirator where you do the hard work of unlearning a lot of these systems of oppression where you, where you lead by behind, right? By really amplifying the work of, of people of color, right? Because unfortunately, um, because I am a woman of color, and even though I have a PhD and I have a lot of accolades, people will still continue to challenge me, and which is fine. But the way that I will be challenged compared to a white woman, even without the credential, is different. And that is unfair, right? And we are tired, and I say we, I am tired and exhausted of all the racial microaggressions that I continue to experience. So it's like, well, I have to defend my point of view. I have to defend my existence before I even talk about these issues. Imagine that's just taxing and hard work. And we can't do this work alone and we shouldn't be doing it alone. That's great. We can definitely like, you know, take some action from that. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like this is not at all the same because I'm obviously privileged to be white, but um, in the gym here, I feel like I have a lot of dudes that'll come up to me and be like, you should do this like this. And I'm like, oh, do you have a master's degree in exercise and sports science? Because I do. So I don't, <laughs> I don't need your help, but thank you. Exactly. Um, and it's all yes. the time that happens to me. Not so much where I currently work, but if I ever go work out at a different gym because I'm in a larger body and I'm a female, mm -hmm. like all of a sudden I must need all the help. 
Yeah. Another action step is like, don't be a bystander. Don't be a bystander, be an upstander when you see microaggressions. Something so simple as the grocery store when you're grocery shopping and and they're asking that person of color, are you going to pay with your EBT or your food stamps? You know, but they don't ask the other person, you know, like small things like that. You know, um, when you see inequalities, when you see people being treated differently because of, you know, one or multiple marginalized identities, like say something that is, that's where white privilege comes in, right? Is like, you don't have to engage. And some of us can't afford not to engage because it's our livelihood. And sometimes we don't engage because it's not safe or because we're exhausted and we have it right not to engage oftentimes, but being uh, upstanders is so important. I wish a lot of my colleagues when I was in grad school would have done that, you know, of, of speaking up when a professor said a racist comment about something in my work and everyone left it out. And then I would get an email from a grad student. Oh, I don't believe that. You know, why are you emailing me thinking to myself, why didn't you say something, you know? So I think it takes courage. I understand it takes courage, but that is what white folks can do is be up center, speak up. That's going away from being an ally, right? To being a co-conspirator and like uplifting and empowering and you doing that work. I think many times people don't jump in because they don't get, they don't have the information yet. And that's why these conversations are so important because the first tool is to have the information. And then once you see it, then you act on it. Dr. Jimenez, we see it. We're going to get as much information as we can as we go. And we'll be part of those, those group of people that are going to act on you know, advocating for um, for this and to standing up for ourselves and for others. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today. Can you just leave us with where people can find you? If we want to learn more, like, where are you? How can we reach yes, you? Yes, yes. So I am on social media. I'm on Instagram and TikTok with the same handle, which is at Dr. Hortense Jimenez, which I'm sure you'll put that on the show notes. And uh, my website is www.hortenciajimenez.com. I'm working slowly <laughs> on a online course that I want to offer. Um, and it's, it's going to come from a sociological lens grounded on intersectionality and social and racial justice on, on healing food and body image. I wanted to launch this course in August, but you know, I'm in my own healing and, and that has meant to slow down and I'm learning to be okay with that. So I'm hoping to, to offer this healing course when I'm ready to release it. So stay tuned. You can uh, join my email list on my bio to learn when the course will be released. And that's where you can find me. That's great. Let me ask you one more question. Um, this is on behalf of my husband. So his mother passed away and she was very guarded with her recipes, like <laughs> to the point where she would like change the amounts of stuff. So like if anybody tried to make it, it wouldn't be as good as hers. Um, <laughs> and in this area where we live, we do not have good Mexican food. And it is something that my husband is like severely lacking in his life. <laughs> um, do you have a good like tortilla recipe? Yes, I do. 
<laughs> I actually have. It's on my Instagram um, during COVID because, you know, we were at home. I had a lot of time to make home cooked recipes. And that's kind of how I started my Instagram. So I actually have a recipe there. But Yay. you don't have to do it necessarily from scratch, which is still okay. Oftentimes we are ashamed, even for altering or cultural foods. And now at the store, you can even get it online. You have the, you can buy a pre-made, the, um, the la masa, the, in English is the, the dough for the corn dough. You can already buy it pre-made and all you do is just add water and a little bit of flour so it could puff and you can make tortillas. You're making them from scratch with pre-made dough and that's okay, you know? Now, if you wanna make them from a very traditional lens of the corn and the gr grinding, that's a whole different story. <laughs> it's possible, but that that that, that will take time. And you I can want that to think day. that I will do that, but I know that I will not. <laughs> that would be an amazing um, cultural thing to do with other people, right? Because then you can share and talk and do a lot. It doesn't seem that it's that difficult. My husband, when he first <laughs> moved time here, when he first moved here, it was his first Christmas and we weren't going home. He's from Texas, um, Mexican heritage from Texas. And I know that they make tamales in his family on New Year's, on Christmas Eve. So I was like, okay, let me get the recipe. And I talked to his godmother and she was like, well, it's just like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I was like, uh, there's not like measurements. <laughs> Oh, she was like, no, we don't really. measure. So she like kind of tried and I made them and they were horrible. <laughs> like, yes, that's one thing. You we know. don't measure food. We don't measure our um, ingredients. <laughs> but I told my, he was super grateful for me, like trying to do this. Yeah. But he's like, babe, it's not really about like eating the food. It's about like everybody sitting around the table, filling the tamales yes. and rolling them. Yes. with the corn husk and all that and just like eating drinking the crown royal as it goes around the table like it was the whole experience not the food but the food was just the catalyst for the experience yes so uh, I feel like I've learned that's a lot right. um, that's such a um, I'm sure you didn't plan it or maybe you did Tara but like what a great metaphor for the whole conversation right food is the catalyst <laughs> but so much more than that <laughs> Of course, I planned it, Elizabeth. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. I think that wraps it up for today. But uh, we really appreciate you educating us on this subject. And we hope that everybody will reach out and follow you because you're doing amazing work. And um, I hope to see more of it in the future, for sure. Mm, thank you so much. Muchas gracias. Thank you for listening. If you want to connect with me outside of this podcast, you can find me on Instagram at coaching underscore therapist. I'm Elizabeth. You can find me at Elizabeth Harris Nutrition or in my Facebook group, Health and Healing with Intuitive Eating. And I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Tara DeLeon Fitness. Guys, if you loved this episode or any of our other episodes, we would love it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us get the non-diet word out to the rest of the world. So please leave us a review. Yes, thank you.